I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. This is a, a brief letter, record of God's revelation to the prophet Habakkuk among the minor prophets. And quite honestly, a book that I've been fascinated with for as long as I can remember. Particularly the, the closing verses, the song with which the prophet concludes, which expresses a resolution to trust in the Lord and to rejoice in Him no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances He ordains for us. But before we can fully appreciate that beautiful song, we have to understand how the prophet got to that point of confessing his faith regardless of the trying circumstances before him. And it begins with the prayer and God's response to the prayer that we find in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. The first, well, the first verse is an introduction. This, verses 2 through 4 are Habakkuk's prayer, and it's a plea of desperation. And then notice how in verses 5 through 11, God responds. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense. Ascribing this power to his God. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Which is a word, quite frankly, that can be confusing to us. Because it seems as though God is raising up a wicked people as his instruments. But congregation beloved in Christ... God is giving us a glimpse here, just the smallest glimpse, of how His sovereign plan encompasses all things and how so often things are not the way they outwardly to our eyes appear. In America, the 1940s through the 1960s are often seen as something of a golden age for the church. That's what the eyes of man perceived. Most of the residents in towns like ours were, during that period, church members. 
On Sundays they were there in the pews. But if we look below the surface, how many of those who were in the pews on Sunday were studying the Bible at home in private? Or were cultivating a practice of personal discipleship? Or were faithfully tithing of their income? Or were bringing the the gospel to the lost personally? I suspect that the spiritual life below the surface was not nearly as vibrant as that which the eyes could see because in the aftermath of that golden age, in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, look then at what the eye could see. How Sabbath observance declined so precipitously among those who sat in the pews. How church discipline was dropped and ignored and even scorned by the vast majority of the churches in America, how the divorce rate among churchgoers easily equaled that among unbelievers, and how folks increasingly openly demanded worship that conformed to their desires and their tastes rather than to the commands of God. The membership roles of the church might have been full, but, but it seems as though countless hearts were empty. And that was the age in which Habakkuk prophesied. Outwardly, it was a time of prosperity for God's people. We don't know much about Habakkuk. We have to guess on the basis of the context and the content of his work precisely when he he experienced this revelation. But judging from what we do read there, it was a prosperous time in the life of God's people. This was the time in which Jeremiah began to proclaim God's word, when Jeremiah was still young. This was the time when Isaiah was still doing his work. The northern kingdom, having been exiled already, But the southern kingdom experiencing a revival of prosperity. It looked good on the surface. But underneath their hearts were empty and rebellious against God. And Habakkuk could see that. He could see that God's people, they might have made, they might have paid lip service to the Lord. But they had abandoned Him. They had neglected to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And He longs for God to show forth His justice, for God to restore the people and to cast off those who were leading them astray. He's surrounded by a form of religion that lacks power, by a people who confess God while serving the idols of their evil hearts. And it grieves the prophet, knowing that God is being dishonored and even ignored. So God's prophet pleads for justice amidst all this evil. That's the theme that we see in this text. God's prophet pleads for justice amidst evil. And God answers that plea, but before But he does so, rather, in in a fairly unexpected way. And we need to see that because oftentimes we struggle to understand what God is doing, how God is acting in our age. What we see is often not reflective of the fullness of what God is doing. 
But this text reminds us that God hears our prayer when we call out for justice and when we call out for mercy. And He is resolved to to work in such a way that His people will be blessed and His kingdom will be built up, even though to our eyes it doesn't seem so. But before we see how God answers the prophet's prayer, we need to see that prayer itself. So our first point, looking at verses 2 through 4, concerns the unrelenting injustice that grieves God's prophet. The unrelenting injustice that grieves God's prophet. Now, as I said, we know little about Habakkuk. We're not told, well, very much at all about him. He has an unusual name which no one who was recorded in Scripture shared. We're not told who his parents were, what tribe he descended from. It seems evident that he lived and worked in Judea because by this time the northern kingdom either had been or was being exiled. And as far as the time in which he wrote, the king who was reigning at that time were not perfectly certain. It seems very likely that he wrote sometime around or a bit after 612 B.C. because that's when the Chaldeans overthrew Babylon and began building their world empire which we'll see in a moment, is rather important. It probably couldn't have been much beyond that, or it wouldn't have been much of a surprise, what God says in verses 5 through 11. But what we know is that he was a prophet. He was a man to whom God revealed his truth, who was called to reveal that truth to God's word, and he regarded that truth, that revelation, as a burden. Yes, it was God's word, and yes, it was for God's people, but it was a message that deeply weighed upon Habakkuk because it didn't foretell easy times ahead. Before that burden came to him, though, he had been pleading with God for help. Verse 2 indicates that he had been praying for intervention for some time, and yet there seems to be no change. That lack of response by the Lord is, is frustrating him, is grieving him. Because the prophet has seen not just sin, but violent sin. Perhaps physical violence, but certainly spiritual violence that has led God's people astray and left the faithful grieving. Because this violence was committed by God's people, by Israel. What did that look like? We get a a better idea of the fullness of this when we look at the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah. They write about how God's people were given to lying and slandering those who did no wrong for their own personal gain. How poor workmen were cheated out of their wages. And those who were impoverished were given loans at high rates of interest that devoured them. Bribes and false testimony transformed the courts into a scam for the rich. And all of it was done by a people increasingly devoted in their hearts to false gods. In short, the people called by God's name were openly embracing ways that, that were rebellious against God. And yet, and yet, despite Habakkuk's prayer, and doubtless the prayer of many other saintly people, God seems silent. So he cries out, how long will you let this evil go unanswered? He's grieved by what he sees. He's grieved by the emptiness of the hearts of the people around him. He wonders why God has not done something about it. So he, he begs, he implores that God would intervene. There must be justice against those who are rebellious. There must be mercy for those who long to serve the Lord in truth. 
Why, asks the prophet, why do you show me iniquity? That word for sin, avon, it comes from a verb that actually means to tire out, to exhaust. The prophet is exhausted and the land is exhausted by the sin and the rebellion of his people. And then he asks another question. Our Pew Bible offers a gloss on this based on some Greek translations. But the Hebrew in the start of verse 3 seems to me to be decisive. He says, why do you show me iniquity? And then in the Hebrew it says, why do you look idly at wrong? Why do you, Lord, look idly at wrong? Because the prophet knows that none of this evil that he perceives has escaped God's attention. God himself is looking upon all this sin, this rebellion, this wickedness. How can he do that if he's the holy God? How can he observe that and not somehow respond? There is strife, he says, and contention arises. People are fighting against against one another. They seek vengeance, they speak lies, they cultivate hatred toward each other, they refuse to demonstrate the mercy and the long-suffering of God. Folks, this is a tragic scene. Habakkuk has recognized depravity that seems to stretch throughout the people of God. And the worst part of it is that it all defames the Lord. Because this people is uniquely identified with God. All the nations know this is the people that serves Yahweh. And so what they do implies that this is what God is like. This is what God approves of. So, Lord, how can you allow your name to be defiled? To the prophet's eye, it is unthinkable. And there seems to be little little hope for help. Where is your hope when you live in a society that is filled with depravity? And the people of God themselves, the people who have personally encountered His mercy, His justice, His truth, are the ones committing the evil. They had every opportunity to turn. God gave them His law. So they knew with great clarity, right from wrong, good from evil. They had all the tools to judge righteously, to punish the sin in their midst, but no one did. No one seemed capable of applying God's law. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. There were righteous men in Israel, men of like mind and heart with Habakkuk. But they were silent because they feared those who were wicked, those who were devoted to self-centeredness and sin and rebellion. And therefore, justice was perverted. There was a justice system in place, but it was twisted. The wicked were pardoned, were set free. Those who rebelled against God were the ones who were given ear, who were heard. But those harmed by the wicked, they were denied help, they were undermined, they were blamed. It was backward, perverse. And Habakkuk is grieved. Folks, this, this is the cry of the godly whenever they are surrounded by wickedness and sin. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, the foundations of the godly are, are the truth of God and the faith in which we stand. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In Habakkuk's day, they could do nothing to overturn the evil and to lead the land back to God. They were powerless. 
those who dared speak up. I mean, think of the experience of Jeremiah. Those who dared to speak the truth of God. They were slandered. They were beaten. They were cast into prison. Jeremiah was even cast into a well where he sank deep into the mud because he dared to speak the truth of God and to call his people to repentance. But God is not without power. God is able to do what is right. So Habakkuk continues praying to the only one who can fix it. Pleading along with godly men like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Begging that God would intervene. That He would bring justice against the wicked. That He would pour out His mercy on those who still trust in Him. And folks, that is what God's people must do when surrounded by evil. It was the cry of Jesus Himself. Surrounded by the leaders of Israel, men who should, who should have loved the truth, but who hated him when he spoke the truth. Men who were called to uphold justice, but who actually pursued injustice against the king of kings. Men who, having received mercy, should have shown mercy, but instead cheered and mocked when Jesus suffered. Surrounded by such wicked men, what did Jesus do? He cried out with the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't that the cry of Habakkuk? Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. The Lord cried out for mercy cried out for help from the only one who can truly provide it. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me, deliver me. Jesus cried the cry of Habakkuk, grieved by the unrelenting injustice that surrounded him. And we, as those who share the prophetic anointing of Jesus... We must cry out the same when we see evil surrounding us. Because we do have cause to pray this prayer. We live in a land where evil has steadily been pervading all of its recesses, even though it was founded by those who sought a place where they could worship God freely and confess Him in truth. Leaders in our land increasingly, on both sides of the aisle, Call evil good and despise what is good as unthinkable. They tear down the great gift from God that is marriage. And they replace it with the Asherah pole of promiscuity. They defend the murder of defenseless infants all for the sake of convenience. That's the land in which we live and it's not just the land. These are the sins of those who confess the true God as their God. On every side, professing Christians choose the lies of men over the truth of God. They proclaim it from the pulpits. They teach it from the classrooms of Christian institutions. In our land today, the Sabbath is scorned by those who had just, were just sitting in the pews. But perversity is proudly promoted. To refuse to shop on the Lord's Day, oh, that's legalistic. But they call someone unjust for proclaiming as sin that which God has proclaimed as sin. Leaders in the church today far too often fear men rather than fearing God. They cultivate bitterness rather than cultivating forgiveness. They cherish lives of ease rather than pursuing the kingdom of God and His righteousness. 
living in a land where the church has been so deformed, brothers and sisters, we need to ask, desperately need to ask, is they, we, do we prefer lives of ease over the often difficult and humbling task of pursuing the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Do we hold tightly to offense and cling to bitterness at the wrong that has been done to us rather than lovingly, selflessly forgiving those who have offended us as God commanded us to do? Do we fear men and refuse to do what He calls us to do rather than rather than boldly following the commands of God and doing what He commands regardless of the cost. It should be our grief and the source of much heartfelt prayer, even that we have to ask the question. But ask the question we must, and then with Habakkuk we need to cry out on behalf of our land, on behalf of the church in our land, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Because the situation of Israel in Habakkuk's age, we're not far from it. However, as we pray that prayer, brothers and sisters, we must not think we can dictate how God will answer. Surely as Habakkuk prayed, he had in mind how he would expect God to answer, how he would long for God to respond. But our God is sovereign, and He is always good, and His sovereign and good plans often don't match with what we think is right, what we think is the best course of action. And we see that in the unexpected justice that God promises in the remainder of our text. The unexpected justice that God promises. First, God commands His servant, look among the nations and watch. See, God was going to address the sins of Israel. He was going to answer that prayer. But He was going to do it by means of the Gentiles, the unbelievers. And what that looked like when it came to pass would astound the prophet. This isn't a plan that Habakkuk would have come up with or any of the other godly people in Israel. It would be unbelievable, in fact. My friends, don't miss the lesson in that verse, verse 5. God does not overlook the sins of His church, nor does He ignore the prayer of His faithful servants. Instead, He shows us He hears the prayer of Habakkuk and surely the prayer of others. He plans to answer those prayers, righteously addressing the grievous situation of Israel. But his answer will be according to his wisdom, not according to the wisdom of men. As Paul said in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We can't second-guess God. He does what is right in His eyes. And we need to accept that what comes to pass comes to pass by His decree. God was about to raise up, He says, the Chaldeans. That's the empire, the people who led the empire known as the Babylonian Empire. At this point, when Habakkuk wrote, it seems like Babylon wasn't really perceived as a threat to Israel. If they were... Well, this would be no news. It wouldn't be astounding at all. You know, you're not astounded by a geopolitical development that seems obvious. 
However, that empire, though it didn't yet seem a threat, it was growing. Already they had a pattern of wickedness. Already they had a reputation for being bloodthirsty. Even then, they were beginning to capture lands and gain influence. And it was this growing empire that God would use to execute justice against the sins of Judea, against the church. Babylon and its army would be an instrument of justice in God's almighty hand. Now, God describes these folks to Habakkuk in great detail, and the picture is far from pretty. He says they're a bitter and hasty nation. Although new on the scene, Babylon is wasting no time in making known their might and their desire. They're going to take over lands. They're going to build an empire. They are going to be great on the face of the earth. That's their intention. And they're going at it. He says they are terrible and dreadful. It's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. It basically means they already are feared and they're causing great fear. The people who've encountered them are terrified by them. And the people whom they approach are learning to be terrified by them. And why? Because they have no compunction. They have absolutely no low gear. They just go full throttle. They decide they're going to take over a land and they take over that land with great power, with great might, and with no restraint. Their army is fierce. Their horses are fast. Their soldiers are well trained and they have no restraint. They fear no one. Princes and kings are jokes to them. The strongest defenses are merely a challenge, a speed bump on their way. And what makes Babylon so insatiable in their conquest? It's their religion. Israel has taken the true God lightly. They've turned back from their passion, but not Babylon. Babylon, they're serving their false gods with all vigor. That's why they do what they do. And where is their false god? It is their own strength. It is their own might. It is their own reputation. And they are insistent that all the world will bow before that God. Listen, folks, this is exactly what God told His people to expect. God warned them through Moses. Disobedience hurts deeply. When the people of God disobey Him, that's an act of rebellion. And God, because He is just, cannot ignore rebellion. Now, all the people of the world one day will answer for their rebellion. But He tells us in His Word that judgment will begin at the house of God. Because they're the ones, we are the ones, Israel of old were the ones who have every reason to serve God. They have, they have the testimony of what God has done in the past. They've experienced His mercy. They have His Word, which reveals the truth to them. And so if they rebel, God can't ignore it. He can't overlook that. And so He told them in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, It shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now listen, that's not because their obedience earned them anything in the sight of God. That's not it at all. But their disobedience revealed that they didn't trust the Lord. Their disobedience revealed they were serving a false God rather than the true. And so he assured them, he warned them, if you refuse to obey my commands, if you live in open disobedience, 
I will curse you at home and abroad. I will curse you in your work and in your provision and in your home and in your city and in your country. I will curse you among the nations. I will make you poor instead of rich. You will borrow money rather than lending. And, he says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the ends of the earth. As swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. Does that sound familiar? That's Babylon. Later on, he says, It shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to nothing. You shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, anguish of soul. That is what God warned His people would happen if they abandoned Him. And yet to Habakkuk... And the people of his age, it was unthinkable. Surely God won't do it. But he would. We know from the books of Kings and of Chronicles that this is exactly what God did. That he fulfilled the word that he spoke to Habakkuk. Now next time, we're going to see how Habakkuk wrestles with that revelation. But today we need to learn the lessons of the fact that God will, in fact deal with and punish the rebellion of the people called by His name. And there's really four lessons from it. Four implications of what God says here. The first is that God is, in fact, in control. There is not a nation on earth, nor has there ever been, which God does not control and which does not serve His omnipotent will. To the eye of of man, the advance of Babylon seemed to be progressing because of their ego, their resources, and their military might. But God says, no, it is I who have decreed that they shall come forth. I have raised them up, and I will use them for my purposes. God alone is fully in control of all that comes to pass. That first. Secondly, all of history follows God's plan. Sometimes that plan seems incomprehensible to us. We can't grasp why God would exalt certain men as leaders. We can't fathom how evil empires can serve the Lord. But God knows what He's doing. He knows how to raise up men who are able to proclaim with power the gospel of salvation. He knows how to build up families and heal diseases and provide prosperity. But He also knows how to punish His people when they stray. How to prune the church in order to remove its hypocrites. How to use affliction to unmask the wolves among the sheep. God knows what He's doing. He knows when to do it. Habakkuk's been praying and pleading for so long. But it's now that God says, the time is ripe. The punishment is coming. Justice will be served. History invariably follows the plan of God. That's secondly. And from that follows that God's purposes will always advance God's kingdom. You see, that's key. From the very start, God has demonstrated His desire to establish a kingdom of those who are redeemed. That's what He was doing when He called forth 
Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. It's what he was doing when he rescued his people from Egypt. It's what he was doing when he set the law before them by Moses. And when he raised up the judges. And when he raised up David as king. It's what he was doing when he restored them from the exile in the age after Habakkuk. It's what he was doing when he sent forth his own beloved son. He is always turning all of history to the end that his kingdom will be raised up and preserved and built and spread throughout the nation so that all of his elect, bar none, will be gathered to him. We don't always see that. We always, we always have limited vision, but we can know for certain everything is decreed by him to the end that his kingdom will be built. Now we need to know that. Because if we understand that God is sovereign, that God controls all of history, and that God is using history to raise up His kingdom, even the wicked men like the Chaldeans, then we can grasp that fourth and final lesson, and that's the important one. We can trust this God, because He is the just God, but He is also merciful And He's promised He will never leave nor forsake those who are His. Jesus taught His disciples in Matthew 24. He said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in My name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That phrase, see that you are not troubled. You see, we will be troubled if we forget that God is in control. We will be troubled if we see how evil has infected even the church of God. We will be deeply troubled if we see the nation continuing on its downward slide and we can't perceive how God might be working in that, how God could possibly use such evil. But if we remember that He is the King on high, that Jesus who came to to die for us, but also to live for us, how He reigns in heaven, and how He assured us that all authority in heaven and on earth is now His, then, brothers and sisters, then we can be not troubled. Think on that. If the wrong candidates win the election, see that you are not troubled. If the stock market crumbles and your savings evaporate, see that you are not troubled. If China and North Korea join forces and rattle sabers, see that you are not troubled. And more personally, if your friends offend you, if your family disowns you, if you get diagnosed with some dreaded sickness, if it seems that you are all alone, see that you are not troubled. Because our God is good and He is sovereign over all things. And Jesus who saved us promises He will never leave us nor forsake us. Therefore, we have no need to be troubled ever as long as we rest in Him. God's prophet pleads for justice in the midst of evil. And that justice will come in an astonishing way. Particularly for those whose sin infects the church. But for you who trust in the Lord, trust Him indeed. No matter what your eyes see, no matter what He has ordained, stand confident in the goodness of His plan and the comprehensiveness of His sovereignty and see that you are not troubled 
no matter what comes to pass. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, You are so faithful. We pray that You would give us the grace to trust in You no matter what comes to pass, knowing that You are good, that Your ways are always perfect, and that we therefore have no need to fear. Deepen our faith in You. And at the same time, Lord, teach us to examine our hearts and to see to it that we are not among those who defile Your name and who lead the church astray. But rather make us to be those who lead the church by our faith. Having no fear, but comforted always in your precious promises. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.